All right, I um, wanted to teach a little bit tonight and uh, needed to get the, the board out just, just because there are some things that I want to talk about that probably are better, better displayed um, on here so that we can, you know, kind of follow graphically what we're doing. And uh, hopefully for those of you who are listening on podcast, um, I will try to use descriptive words, but if not, hopefully you can see the video that is now, we hope, being taken so you can see what's going on. Um, I want to talk to you really about, about a structural understanding of, of the culture of the kingdom and, and how, how the core of that has become distorted. And that really what we are endeavouring to do, you know, maybe in a very clumsy way, is to recognise where the distortion has occurred and to do what I call is redeeming the gospel. So, the um, reason I wanted to do this, there's a very important word that I, wanna, I wanted to write here because this has historic significance beyond what you will understand because the word is mischief. Now, many of you know mischief is when you do something that you probably shouldn't have done and you endeavour to get away with it. That's mischief. Okay, So mischief's not just doing something. The mischief is what's attached to that in the hope that you'll get away with what it is that you did. Nobody will notice. It was mischievous. Okay, We did it in such a way that nobody was going to catch on what we were doing. And nobody would pick on that we did it. It was mischievous. Now, um, I want to talk to you a little bit about Martin Luther. Who knows who Martin Luther is? Okay. He's not the leader of the, of the, uh, the race thing in, in America, you know, for uh, civil rights. Okay, that's Martin Luther King. Um, Martin Luther was, was the guy who initiated uh, and gave the energy to what we know as the Reformation. Okay. And uh, all that happened, we're going way back, 1517, okay? 1517 was, the, was what's known as the Protestant Reformation. The reason that Reformation occurred was because Martin Luther, who um, at that time was a Catholic monk, came to the conclusion that, that this had happened, okay? Mischief. And um, by 1517, he had qualified uh, the elements that he felt the church had now become mischievous in its dealing with and its application of, which he felt had distorted what the kingdom of God was all about. So he, he nailed this 59 articles to the, you know, the door of the church in, in Wittenberg. And, uh, you know, that's, if you're interested in that, go read it. If you've got a computer, Google it. Okay. The point is that, that the church, of course, started like back here in 30-something, well, let's call it 30 AD was about when, you know, the, the cal our calendar doesn't actually tag correctly with the life of Jesus. Jesus was probably born about, about 3 BC, okay? 
and uh, therefore 33 years later was crucified about 30 AD. So, so we, we have, in 30 AD, we have pretty much the resurrection of Jesus and the beginning of this movement, which I cannot stress enough, was never meant to be a religion, okay? It was the furthest thing from Jesus' mind. He, if anything, he was coming to dismantle what had become a religion, which was what the Hebrews had made of God's dealings with them had now become a religion. Jesus came to dismantle that, and uh, if you read the Gospels correctly, you will see that at every turn, with every parable, Jesus is dismantling those ideas. Why? Because the Hebrews had become as mischievous, right, about the, about the interpretation of the dealings of God with them as by Martin Luther's time the church had become. So we have this um, kind of golden period where after the resurrection there is no denomination called Christian, okay? In fact, um, nobody was called Christian, which I've explained to you before, um, until... Uh, until the apostles started sharing the gospel and then they, they started to be called Christian, okay? Um, and I've told you before that, that was used against them more as a derogatory term than it was uh, a, a commendation of, of who they were. So, so they were the people of the way. They just, there was a direction they were now living and it all came from the revelation of Jesus and his, his death and his resurrection and his life and then their lives being transformed and then... We're going to change the world. So, uh, all was going well for about the first century. And then, of course, the problem is people like us get hold of stuff like that. And then um, uh, we, we, make, we start to want to make it um, a constitutional thing. Okay? And by that I mean, it's a bit like the Americans that when they when they went for their um, uh, revolution and liberty, they wanted a constitution. This, we've got to put down on paper what we think and what we expect. Then, of course, you have to build around that um, some kind of structure who will define what the rules are, and then you have to have people to police the rules, and you have to decide what constitutes the keeping and breaking of the rules. And then once you have people to police the rules, you then have to decide, well, well, there has to be penalties for breaking the rules. So then we have to have people who judge people who broke the rules, who imposed the penalties, and then those penalties have to be carried out in the judgment. So we sentence people. And so what we have then is we've moved it then into an, an institutional organization. So from about, the, from about the first century there to the third century... Um, this was going on, and the, the, the spread of the gospel was going wider, but the institutionalization was getting stronger, okay? So by the time we get to the mid-300s, of course, we have, we've then reached the time of, uh, of, of uh, Constantine. And uh, the embracing of Christianity by the Roman Empire, which sounds a wonderful thing that how amazing that you know the predominant political uh, and economic and military power would embrace Christianity um, but really if, if you are a student of history you'll realize that he did it more for um, his political standing than he did 
to advance the gospel. Because this, um, this new belief of these people, they thought it would die out. And, or it would remain just a minor blip on the calendar of history. And, um, and uh, you know, in, even in the, Roman, in the Roman culture, it would disappear. But of course, the opposite was happening. This thing was getting stronger and stronger. And, uh, of course, because of that, the, there was a concern that as it got stronger and stronger with more and more people, it then became a threat to the empire. Of course, um, the one of two things, either, either he had no idea what Christianity was about, or the Christianity by that time had become so distorted that he was afraid that they'd take up arms and militarily try and overrun Rome. So you think, something went wrong somewhere. So, so there's this embracing of... Christianity into mainstream. Now, you know, we have the Roman Empire now accepts Christianity. So, of course, what happens out of that, it goes from uh, the Roman Empire and then you get the Holy Roman Empire because now the whole issue of, of, of the Pope and all the stuff about him being the descendant of Peter and directly apostolic succession all was very much a, an image of, of what what coloured Roman society then because there was a point in the development of the Republic of Rome where, where the emperor decided he was a god. So the emperor was now a god. Uh, he was directly appointed by God and he was a god. So, so you know, the, the statement, uh, even when the early church was beginning, in Jesus' day and just after that, was, was that you were required to say that Caesar is Lord. So, when, when Paul said nobody said that says that Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit, he wasn't meaning you need a special work of the Holy Spirit to say Jesus is Lord, because anybody can say the words. What he was meaning is that once you do that, you said Caesar is not Lord. So, you said that the supreme ruler of the empire that you live in is not Lord. He is not divine. He is not deity. Jesus is Lord over all. That took a lot of courage. And uh, of course, many people in that context lost their lives out of a profound commitment to the fact of needing the world to know that Jesus is Lord. Caesar is just human, but Jesus is Lord. So we've got all this stuff going on, but by the time we get three and a half centuries in, um, institutionalization is setting in. And uh, there are all kinds of stuff going on. We've now got bishops over different regions and areas, and we start having councils, the Council of Nicaea, and all those kind of stuff, and uh, start making all kinds of decisions by committee and different infighting and thoughts. And of course, what happened then was that, that the, this organic movement that Jesus begun um, became institutionalized. So once we move past about the third century, um, you then see that, that it becomes more about the institution than it is really, in essence, about the message, that the two cannot be separated, okay? So, so the reason I'm telling you that is that then we go from basically here to here, so 1,200 years of a distortion of the gospel, okay? Uh, 1,200 years of mischief, okay? Now, when we get to Martin Luther in 1517, some of the practical expressions of that 
was the idea that, that, that you could buy yourself or your family out of sufferings in hell by paying money to the church, the, 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 the Roman Catholic Church. They called them indulgences. And uh, that was just one of many ideas that um, had made the authorities in the church powerful and the people who the message was sent to reach weak. So now the people were being controlled by the leaders. So of course, in those days also, you had a situation where um, the Bible was only in, in Greek or Latin, okay? Uh, which of course, you or I, the ordinary person in the educational system of that day, unless we had studied at university level, of which of course there weren't that many universities, and you had to come from a fairly wealthy background to be there, you would have no idea what even the priest was reading. You know, I mean, he could have been reading about Mickey Mouse and you wouldn't know. Because the idea was that only the priest is anointed by God to, you don't read the Bible, the priest tells you what the Bible says. Very dangerous. And um, we've actually gone a step further than some people are comfortable with because some people say, no, uh, we want you to read the Bible and to know the Bible, but we want to tell you how you should interpret the Bible because, you know, it's dangerous for you to interpret it. So, so we have to tell you what to think when you've read the Bible. Now, of course, um, my, my philosophy of thought is that I'm here to teach you how to think, not tell you what to think. And that um, real freedom in this comes when you let people have an experience and walk the journey and, 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 and have a culture of questions which allow us to be always assessing the truth that we think we believe to see if there are greater levels of that truth and more clarity that we can come to. So all that was gone, okay? And in its place, mischief. So when Martin Luther comes on the scene, he recognizes this, and the reason I use that word is not because I just picked it out of the air. Uh, it's because in, in 1517... Martin Luther actually used that in a phrase that I've used before. This is what Luther says. It seems a small matter to mingle the law and the gospel. We'll talk about that in a minute. Faith and works, but it creates more mischief than a man's brain can conceive. So Martin Luther wanted to define why the mischief was there and what the mischief was about. You know, because it's not just about... Um, any of you that uh, you know watch Monty Python's The Spanish Inquisition, right? Not about kind of priests running around in funny robes doing strange things. Luther was much more grounded in, in why he said it creates a mischief in, in people's minds. So, so Luther brought onto the table a very specific uh, issue. Now, the problem is... Because we always go there now, we've moved away from the specific issue that Luther put on the table. So we think that the Reformation that Luther brought in was just about a, a different way of understanding how you obtain salvation, right, from God. So if you ask most people, you know, what, what was Martin Luther's message? Martin Luther's message was that you're saved by faith alone, which is true, but but that was the conclusion of a, of a deeper level of thinking. Because Martin Luther said the problem is not just one of basically how do you get to heaven. He said the problem is much more than that. So, 
So he said, here's the problem. The problem is about, it's about the law, and I'm going to explain this a bit more, versus, now here's where the problem comes now, even when you start to get into the church world, people talk about the law versus grace. But Martin Luther never talked about the law versus grace. Now that's the problem. I, I have a problem sometimes when we're traveling around now because uh, people have a certain impression that is under a particular name and the name they use is all the grace message, the grace message, the grace message. Um, and that comes from a misunderstanding of what the real issue is that we are trying to resolve. It's not the law as in demands and requirements and the Ten Commandments versus grace, God forgives us. Martin Luther says it's the law versus the gospel. Now that's very important to grasp. The battle is not about a law versus grace, it's about the law versus the gospel. So what Martin Luther was saying is that when we depart from a true understanding of what the kingdom is about and this, this guy here becomes important. <coughs> what we distort is this, the gospel, right? So he then gives two subcategories, okay? Under here, he talks about works, okay? So when we talk about the law, it's not just about, oh, well, you know... Um, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. You know, don't cheat on your wife. Don't lie, you know, about what you do. Don't, don't tell stories about other people. Basically, my summary of the Ten Commandments. Um, and, of course, you know, if any of you read the Bible and know that uh, when you read through the Old Testament, there were 613 other laws that all get bundled in with that. So we think it's about rules, but actually Martin Luther says, no, what the law defines is that we believe we can achieve what we need to achieve by the means of works, right? So when we say that Christ has set us free from the law, we're not actually talking about he set us free from what the Ten Commandments demanded of us, which we couldn't keep anyway. We're saying what God has done is freed us from works being the way by which we find relationship with God, by which we serve God, by which the kingdom of God comes. So this is what Martin Luther is saying, because all this, the mischief is they had made it about works. And once you make it about works, it's very easy to put a judgment system in there that, that, that then controls and manipulates and brings fear and nobody ever gets free because what works should you do and to what degree should you do those works and when should you do those works and for how long and at what point have you actually achieved a place of acceptance with God. So, so the law, Luther said, is about works. So this is the battle, the law versus the gospel. But the gospel, he said, is about two things. I'm going to put two subdivisions in here. Um, he talks about faith, which is important. Because now it's not, about, it's not about confidence in the works that we have done. It's about faith in the work that he has done. So Martin Luther had grasped, when Jesus said it is finished, really, that was the final word. Okay, that was the last word on the matter of this, the law 
and the necessity of works to be performed by us to give us peace with God and access with God. So, because the other word in there that we would use now, probably more than faith, because it's relevant to us, is the word grace. Okay? <clears throat> so, in the gospel, grace is what works to make the gospel what it is. Okay? So, so... When we're talking about the new covenant, the new covenant is not grace. Grace is something that's within the new covenant. The old covenant is not works. The old covenant is law. Works are what are within the old covenant. So that the old covenant law is driven by works, which is where all this problem had happened in this 1,200 years. It all become about works. And Martin Luther was trying to address the matter that we have to redeem the gospel. We have to get the gospel back. So our battle is not whether we can establish a message of grace. Our battle is whether we can actually redeem the gospel because there has been a mischief. Now, here's the mischief. And Martin, Martin Luther explains the mischief. Martin Luther says, it's when we try to mix. Okay, so let me make a bit of space for me in there. What Luther said was it's when we try to mix, right, the law and the gospel. That's the mischief, he said. Because this is separate from this. The whole issue of the new covenant is I will make a new covenant, right? It will not be like the old covenant which I made with my people when I led them out of Egypt, but this will be a new covenant that I will make, says the Lord. The new covenant is the gospel, Okay, And the gospel is the new covenant. So Luther says the mischief happens when we try to mix this system. Now, the problem is, unbeknown to some of you, uh, but some of you are now acutely aware of it, is that we have been raised under a system that has described the gospel as a mix of these two things. Okay, So... We are saved by faith through grace, but then the stuff you still have to do. Now, what gets scary, you see, is if we fully accept this, we're saying there's nothing you have to do for this to be a reality. Now, we struggle with that because in the mischief of all those years, we have had so ingrained into us that, yes, although you are forgiven, although Jesus died for you, that at any moment you can interfere with that by the stuff that you do. Now, that doesn't mean that the stuff that we do is without consequence. So, let me, let me show you another little thing here, okay? See, there are consequences two ways. There's vertical and horizontal consequence, okay? Here's what happened. When Jesus gave his life on the cross, he fulfilled what was prophesied in Jeremiah 31 and repeated in Hebrews chapter 8 of what the new covenant would do. And here's what the new covenant would do. that The big theme of the new covenant is their sins and unrighteous acts I will remember no more. Okay? And um, I spent most of my life, up until 11 years ago, not realizing what I was doing, but I was reminding God of things he'd already forgotten. 
because I, I couldn't fully accept that actually this was now totally removed from the equation. Right? What is it that was finished? That was finished. The problem of vertical consequence, i.e., my behaviors, my choices, meaning that I was no longer right with God. So God made a covenant with himself that was enforced through Jesus, okay? And you've got to remember that, okay? Abraham, in Genesis chapter 22, God made a covenant with himself about Abraham. He put Abraham to sleep while God made a promise to himself and said, if I ask Abraham to promise me that he'll keep this covenant, it's got no chance of succeeding, so if it's going to be an eternal covenant, I have to take Abraham out of the equation. So at the cross, God didn't make a covenant with humanity because he knew there was no chance of it succeeding. So he took us out of the equation. So it wasn't one of us that died for our sins. It was God in Christ, okay? God becoming man, becoming of the seed of Adam so that he could kill Adam, right? And begin a new race of people in Christ. Okay, so this could be removed. Now, that is mind-blowing because uh, control, manipulation, institutionalization goes to pot once you remove that. Because what am I going to threaten you with? Hey? Johnny asked me a question last night. We were, we were out late eating and, you know, he said, uh, he said, but, he said, but, but doesn't God, because he's, is God, doesn't he have the right to judge us because he sees things and knows things, which again, that's another debate. He sees things and knows things, but out of that, surely, just because he's God, he has the right, he has the right to make judgments that I might not agree with or that I might not understand. Sounds very feasible, doesn't it? But imagine you come into my court and I'm the judge and there is no accusation against you. What conclusion can I draw? I have only one option, which is there's no accusation, so there's no condemnation. So this idea that somehow God as the judge can, can, can then judge us about things that we kind of just missed or were unaware of cannot be in the equation because if he doesn't remember our sins and unrighteous acts, then it doesn't matter at what time of what day, of what year, of whatever century, of any time you stand before him, he can't judge you for it because he doesn't remember it, right? So this idea, but God's the judge, so he can do things that we, we must not question because he's, you know, he just can't do that because the new covenant changed all that. So the whole issue is that faith and grace took this out of the equation. That's the wonder of the gospel, Right? But this now, this consequence, still happens, but it's horizontal, okay? This has no impact on this. You've got to grasp that. You might be in a total mess, you might be making a complete fool of yourself, and you might be ruining your life, but it has no impact on this, right? Because you didn't establish that. Jesus took all the vertical consequence out of the way when he said, it is finished. So when Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Corinthians 10, all things, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything's going to do you good. 
Everything's permissible, but some things will master you. You'll become an addict. You'll become controlled. He was talking about horizontal consequence, okay? So I, I wanted to throw that in because I do want you to realize that the choices we make in life are still important, but the impact of those choices are in our life this way. So you want to live a good life, you want to be blessed, you, then there are some kingdom principles in Jesus that you would do well to bring into your life and they will help you to prosper and be blessed, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. So, so I needed to say that so you understand that, okay? Um, but what has happened, Martin Luther said, is, is the mischief is when we try to mix these, the law and the gospel works and grace, when we try to mix those, that's where the mischief comes in. So, he had recognized that for 1,200 years at least, this had been how the gospel was formulated. A mixture of works that we do and grace that God gives. So Martin Luther says, okay, what we've got to do is not have a mix what has to happen is we have to have enough courage to say that in Jesus, this is no longer part of the gospel. Okay? That all that constitutes the gospel is, is grace and faith. So, we get amazing verses in the New Testament that says, by grace you are saved through faith, and that not from yourself, even that's the gift of God, not by works, lest any one of us should boast and say that we have somehow done something to earn this. Now, the extent of that is, to someone who lives in the mix, frightening. To someone who's been willing to embrace the gospel, it's releasing. For example, here's, here's the mischief of the mix. Unless you repent, you can't be forgiven. Okay? So what am I asking Alice to do? I'm asking Alice to work for her forgiveness. And then I put myself in the position, because then if you say, but what do you mean by repentance? Well, we mean turning from your past life. What do you mean by turning from your past life? What are the elements that are necessary to prove that you actually did that and that you didn't just do it outwardly, so that people could see you'd done it, but you did it inwardly. How do you measure that? So what I'm saying to Alice is, Alice, you have to struggle to work this thing called repentance, and when there's enough of that, you can be forgiven. But you see, when we redeem the gospel and say, no, that's a mix, so what do we have to take out? We have to take works out of there. Because Martin Luther says, this is the mischief when the law and the gospel are mixed, when works and faith are mixed. So when we take that out of the equation, we say it turns on its head. So, so I am forgiven, not because of anything I do, not because of any prayer that I pray, not because of any apology that I give. Because I could also argue that, that if forgiveness is not given irrespective of anything, then it's not actually forgiveness. Because if you're really sorry, and I know you're really sorry, in essence, I'm not really forgiving you. Because now we've just paid the debt that you owed to me, which I felt you have, you have done something against me. Now you've put that right, so I don't need to forgive you. So forgiveness is before anything's put right, and if anything is never put right, I'm actually forgiven. Okay, That's the wonder of grace that has to be received by faith because it, it, it's beyond what we would do 
in our human beings. So, so, so when you stop mixing them, you have to say, ah, okay, so I don't repent in order for God to forgive me. If I am going to repent, I repent because God has forgiven me. So repentance now becomes a response to something that has been given rather than the work to try and get something to be given, okay? So as I said, that, that, that our friend Tulian thingamabobajig, that Danny's learning his name, um, retweeted, was that it is finished is not something you do, it's something you accept, okay? So, so Martin Luther in his stumbling way and... Um, you know, he, he, he began to get this revelation. Guys, the issue here is we've tried to mix the law and the gospel. We've tried to mix works and grace, and that creates the mischief. So, so I love his boldness. He was daring enough to say, we have then been mischievous in how we have presented the gospel because now we have to support our belief, which really is masking, hiding the fact that we have a mix of, of law and grace, of, of, of law and the gospel of works and grace. So, so, what happens then is this. We, we start to invent stuff, okay? So that we can get away with the mischief. So, so a consequence of that, so that we don't have to make the big change, um, is that we have three words that are key to what has been given us as the gospel, which are invented words, okay? And I've talked about all of these, but we'll talk about them for a minute, okay? We have three invented words. Hell. Nowhere in the Bible. That's a made-up word. It's a made-up word that contains within it three very specific words. Um, one is Hades, okay? Or if you're in the Old Testament, that's the equivalent to Sheol, okay? The other one, the most used one by Jesus that he used all the time, was Gehenna, okay? Um, and the third one was a word called Tartarus, which appears only one time. Tartarus. There we go. Right? Yeah, it sounds like a sauce. This sounds like something you do in Dublin with the girls, a Gehenna night. <laughs> um, so, we now, when we, we come now to hear what we think is the gospel, but now there's a mischief. Because we have taken these very specific things and we have said, let's call them hell, okay? And then what happens, we create a whole doctrine around this word that's not even in the Bible. Yeah, which, which of course, the, the ultimate of that expression is, is, this is where you'll go when you die, if you haven't repented, or if you have repented, but then you didn't live right, as a believer, all these kind of things in different streams, you'll finish up in hell. Of course, then the opposite to that, which is a Bible word, but, but has been completely misrepresented, is heaven, right? Again, we'll, we'll do a little drawing to show you about that in a minute. The other word that, that uh, is an invented word is church, okay? Invented word. 
So again, we're going to our history, 1547. I am absolutely a treasure trove of historic information. 1547, okay? Um, Theodore Betzer, Frenchman. He is a disciple of a guy called John Calvin who would be a disciple of Martin Luther, okay? So if you've ever heard the term Calvinism, that, that comes out of um, John Calvin who, who was based in, in Geneva in Switzerland. But Theodore Betzer, disciple of John Calvin, he was the first one that is recorded that we understand who, who used this word church, okay? And uh, uh, in 1558, there was published um, um, what was really, in essence, one of the first Bibles in English, which was the Geneva Bible. And uh, in the Geneva Bible, for the first time in the Bible, the word church is used, okay? Now, you might say, well, what's the problem with that? Well, there's a mischief. Uh, and the mischief we still experience, because when, when I say the word church, what are you thinking? You're thinking this. We even call it, it's a church, you go to church. We call the institution the church. Uh, and this word is nowhere in the Bible. It's actually, again, you know, from the Greek word is kairidakon, okay? Kon. That, that's the Greek word which, you know, for the, for the, for the north of the border people among us, like, like James, uh, who, who, who will be familiar with the word kirk, you know, going to the kirk in Scotland, that, that word kirk, which is now K-I-R-K, is, is a, a, de, a derivative of when you run it back, it was, it was C-H-I-R-C-E, and then you go all the way back to this, kyridikon, which is the Greek word. Now, you say, well, why is that so important? Because this word actually means a religious meeting place, okay? A religious meeting place. So he said, well, what was, what was the original word? The original word was the Greek word ekklesia. Okay? Ekklesia. So when you read the word church in your Bible, um, the actual word that that was translated from is not this that means translates to church in English. It's the word ekklesia. Now, here's where the mischief continues, Okay? Bunch of mischievous people we have been. If you look up that word in a Christian book, okay, like for example a Bible commentary. So you you let's say you go to uh, Matthew sixteen eighteen, when Jesus said, "I will build my," and you read the word church. Um, the Greek word there was ecclesia. That's, that's, Jesus said, I will build my ecclesia. Now, there's a bigger story with that in terms of what he meant by the gates of Hades and that, which we may not have time to talk about tonight. But um, Why did Jesus choose a very specific Greek word uh, rather than using images that they were familiar with? Like, for example, why didn't Jesus say to that audience, I will build my temple? Or why didn't he say, I will build my synagogue? Why did, he, why did he go completely outside of the religious framework 
and use a word that had nothing to do with religious organizations whatsoever, ecclesia. Ecclesia, if you look into Greek history, five centuries before Jesus ever used the word ecclesia, you can find the word used in Greek literature five centuries before Jesus. So this was not a word that suddenly was plucked out of the air. Jesus deliberately said, here's what I'm going to build. Now, of course, you, you know I've talked about this before. An ecclesia was a group of ordinary people that were called together in the community and they were empowered to make legislative decisions that would affect the whole community. So here's the wonderful thing. The qualification to be significant in the temple or in the synagogue was that you had to be a priest. Or you had to be in the Jewish culture, a Levite, which meant you had to come either from the family of Aaron, the brother of Moses, um, to be the priest, or you had to come from the, the tribe of Levi in Israel to be a worker in the temple. But you see, the, the Greek idea was that your qualification to be a part of this was your ordinariness. Right? So Danny the musician... And, uh, and Alice, the saleswoman, and, uh, and, and your name is Claire, and, 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 Claire, and, and, Claire, and Claire, the college professor. You know, and, and Dave, Dave, the toolmaker. You know, it was, that's what, you were simply qualified by your ordinariness. And what happened was it was a privilege, it was a status of privilege where somebody in a higher authority said, I choose Danny, I choose Amy, I choose James, I choose Chris. And suddenly we find ourselves being invested with authority just because we were ordinary and because we had made ourselves part of the group and then we were the ones who were empowered to make decisions that would change the community. So Jesus didn't say, I'll build my religious meeting place. He said, I'll build my group of ordinary people who've been brought together to make legislative decisions and change the community. I think Jesus had a specific plan in mind. So his choice of words were very clear. Now, here's the mischief. You look up that in a, a Bible commentary, and here's the definition it will give you. A gathering of God's people, Right? A group of the called out ones. But always with the implication that, that it's by our religious commitment to a group, a process, or to God himself, or to Jesus, when actually this had absolutely nothing to do with that whatsoever. Now within it, it demanded a faith that was attached to the grace. Okay? But the whole idea of ordinariness and us coming together and being empowered and being released was what Jesus had in mind to change the community. So, why have I told you that? Because here's the mischief. Well, let's just slip a different word in there. Because those guys will never notice. Instead of calling it what Jesus said it was supposed to be, let's call it what it's become. Because what had it become? Well, Betzer was describing what it had become. Well, Let's, Chiridicon would be a good word to describe it because what it's become a, a religious meeting place. So you can see his thinking, but it's a mischief. Why? Because it's a mix of 
of the law and the gospel. It's a mix of, it's a mix of works and grace that then lead us to, to be misled. So, so we've got this, this word here, we don't understand. Jesus, when Jesus talked about this, he was not talking about conscious eternal punishment. This, for those of you who've never heard, we could talk a long time, but we're not going to. This was the city garbage dump of Jerusalem. Right, fires burned and dogs howled and they fought over the scraps of the, of the stinking carcasses that were dumped there, of the animals that had died that couldn't be eaten. and all the. So, so when Jesus said, you'll finish up in, not this word, because this wasn't a word. You know, when Jesus said, you'll, you'll finish up in Gehenna. So if I say to Alice, Alice, if you keep, I'll keep picking on you tonight. Help <laughs> Jesus. If you keep living this way, okay, your life is going to be as though you lived at the landfill site where all the birds are coming and picking on the stuff and it stinks and it's horrible and it's mushy and it's vile. So, so when Jesus talked to people here, they're not thinking, I'm going to be in eternal conscious torment forever. They're thinking my life is going to be lived as if it were lived on the garbage dump with the disease and everything that's going on. Now, is there an eternal context that we need to talk about yet. Yeah, the Bible calls it the lake of fire. But here's the mischief. That, this, is not that. Because even this, when it talks about Hades, is going to be cast into this. So if that's this, how can it be cast into itself? Because it says death and Hades are going to be cast into the lake of fire. It doesn't say Gehenna is going to be cast in there, which is another story. So all I'm trying to show you is we introduce this because there's a mischief. We don't want to deal with all this. The problem is when you start to deal with all this, it leads you to only one place, which is the wonder of the gospel, the marvel of grace, and the wonder that faith is the only access point into that. So let me give you the other word. Uh, the other word that has been messed with is something that I've now forgotten. That's right. Yeah, that's not very important, that one, is it? Yeah. So, those three words, hell, church, and we'll deal with that last one, and then we do one little picture. And what's that? You, you could, but heaven, yeah, heaven, heaven will come in in the next little picture that I'm going to do. So, the third word that it's invented is this one. It's a derivative of a word that means to, to speak out or to proclaim, okay? But I've been in churches all around the world and said, okay, I ask the people, what does this word mean? And everybody tells me, right. Okay, so we all know that what has happened is because news is something you proclaim, we decided, ah, okay, we'll use this word, okay? But here's the problem. If I don't know that it's good news, how is that going to tell me that I'm about to give you good news? And, of course, my other even stronger point of philosophical argument about this is if that means good news, why not just call it good news? Seems to make more sense to me Rather than saying, can I share the gospel with you, is to say, I've got some good news for you. So why has that happened? Why, where's the mischief in this? Because if we call it the gospel, 
we can get away with saying stuff that's neither good nor news and nobody will notice, okay? So the mixture that we have created has meant now that in the gospel we can put stuff that's not good and it's not news, but because we call it the gospel, nobody recognized. Now, you know, I find this extremely simple and it helped me when I understood this, that how do I know if my grasp of what Jesus was trying to show me and the Bible is trying to reveal is, is this. Well, it's very easy. First question, is what I am understanding good? And secondly, is it news? Because if it's only one of those and not the other, or if it's neither of those things, then it's not the gospel. It has to be good and it has to be news. Now, here's the problem. If our understanding of the gospel is the one that Martin Luther was challenging, which is a mix of law, works, you have to work, you even have to work to be forgiven, and then you have to work when you've been forgiven to stay forgiven. You know, if it's all about works, then, then the truth is, that's never going to be good. You know, the law is good at what it does. So when, when the Bible says the law is good, people say, oh, the Bible says the law is good. Yeah, the law is good. Um, you know, when I watch somebody playing rugby and say he's good, I don't mean that he is morally without fault. You know, that he always treats his wife correctly and he doesn't kick the dog and he pays all his bills on times. So what do I mean? I mean he's good at rugby, okay? So I've gone to watch him as a rugby player and he's good at what he does. So I say he's really good and I mean he's good at rugby. So when the Bible says the law is good... It doesn't mean that the law is, is, is able to change your life and make you perfect and, and transform your It means the law's good at doing what it does, okay? So what does law do? Law points out your faults. Law tells you you failed. Law doesn't do anything else. Law doesn't tell you you're a good person. Law tells you you're a bad person. Law tells you you're a lawbreaker. And there are only two possible things that can happen when you live under a law. One is that you are condemned by that law. The other one is that you're filled with pride because of that law. And both are equally as bad. Because if I think I've kept the law, it fills me with pride. And if I don't think I've kept the law, it fills me with despair because of brokenness. The law's good at what it does. It just points out that if it's by the law that we're ever to find a place of acceptance with God, we have absolutely no chance whatsoever. So Luther says we don't need a bit of that and a bit of this, which is where the problem comes in and why the distortions come. Well, we need a bit of that and a bit of this. What Martin Luther was driving at, we can't have the mix, we've got to make a decision, and we have to give our lives to this, which is the good news, okay? So, that, that's a little... History and background on that, and then I'm just going to cover one principle. We could do more, but we're just going to cover one principle that I've talked to you about before, but I want to get it in your hearts by drawing it on here. Okay, so, can we, can we um, verify and justify what we've been talking about um, if we go and, and look at the Scriptures? See, because, because when Martin Luther was talking about a mischief, he said, what has happened is that we've created a lens that distorts our view of Scripture. So much of what we come to understand as being what God is like, 
how God works, what God requires of us, has become that because of the lens that we have been given. Okay? So one of the things that, that happened with me personally and, and with Chris, and we, we are in this process all the time, is that now with the new lens of, of trying to get clear of the mischief that manipulates things to support something that looks like the truth but isn't, which is the mix of the law and the gospel, it's still that we, we've got to have works and you know, all this stuff working together. When you get rid of that lens and begin to see the scripture, you see some fascinating things. So one of the things I've talked to you about, one of the things I haven't really talked to you about. So, so here we go right back to Genesis, um, and I think it's, it's in chapter 2. Take a couple of minutes this. Let me just pull up these verses for you. You're familiar with them because I've talked to you about them before. And I do have a Bible in here somewhere. Let's see, there we go. Okay, remember this one from Genesis chapter 2. The account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, verse 4. Okay, so, heavens and the earth. So, okay, so here we go. Right, there, and the heavens. I won't draw the heavens, I'll just draw the earth. Okay, heavens, right? When they were created, okay, so here's the earth. It's created. Now, this is when you're looking through the new lens, you see something very remarkable. Uh, because it says in verse 5, no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth and no plant of the field had yet sprung up. So, it looks like that, right? Because no shrub of the field has yet sprung up, no plant of the earth has been seen. That's what it looks like, okay? But then the next thing it says that... that um, uh, nothing had happened because there hadn't come the right partnership, which again is another story that we're not going to go into extensively, but God hadn't sent the rain, and it says there was no man to work the ground. So immediately we're given a clue that God's purpose from the very beginning was partnership. Right? So this idea of God, and he has this crazy idea, and he creates the world, and humanity falls, and God's got a problem, but he sends Jesus, and kind of it, it's just you know, some idea he cooked up one Sunday afternoon of like, and didn't quite, you know, this, this thing is wonderfully designed by God because he wanted us to participate in partnership with him to change stuff, right? Now remember, I will build my ecclesia. What was that? All you ordinary people partnering together and with me will change stuff, okay? So one of the things we've lost sight of in the distortion of the gospel is that we're here to change stuff. So that's where heaven comes in. We're not here to go there, right? That's not the point, okay? But in the distortion of the gospel, law versus gospel, works versus grace, what we made the point was, here's the deal. You're a sinner. You've fallen. You have to find salvation through Jesus so that you can go to heaven, Okay? And that's what's become known as the gospel of salvation. But if you read the gospels, you'll never find Jesus preaching the gospel of salvation. You find him preaching the gospel of the kingdom. So he doesn't say, here's what you do to get salvation and go to heaven. He says, here's what you do to see the kingdom come. Your kingdom come, it will be done here in the like it is in heaven. So, then it goes on to say... Um, uh, and the Lord God formed man from the dust of the, the earth. Verse 7 of Genesis chapter 2. Man. Okay. Okay, man. So, this is how far we've got. Okay, it's a proper reading of Scripture. This is how far we've got. What's the earth like? There's no shrubs, there's no plants. So he, he, 
Adam's first experience of the earth then therefore must be barrenness. There's nothing here. <laughs> you know, what's all this? Who am I? Right? The, 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 the question of humanity throughout the ages, who am I? And why am I here? Okay? So, so don't think that's something that just happened to us in the 21st century. Adam's first thought is, who am I and why am I here? Good question. Very good question. And that's the question of humanity. Who am I and why am I here? So, it says that after that, in verse 8, the Lord God planted a garden in the east. So, north, south, east. It would be here, wouldn't it? So, here, the Lord God plants a garden. And it's fruitful. So, you know, I should have Kev doing this, shouldn't I? So here we are, bushes and trees and whatever, you know, and the tree of life, tree of knowledge of good and evil. Here's the garden. We'll put a G in there, okay? <laughs> so, you know, let, people talk about we've got to be accurate to Scripture. Did the garden fill the whole earth? Once you say it was in the east, in a place called Eden, you have now located it, which means that all this wasn't that, Okay? Now the question is, where was the man made? He was created from the dust of the earth, out here. Now, what other confirmation do we have of that? Because it says that when, he, when God had planted the garden in verse 8, he says, and there he put the man who he had created. In verse 15, it says he took the man and put him in the garden. So, God takes him from there and puts him in there. Okay? So now he's not here anymore. He's there. So his experience here is radically different to his experience there. Now, it says that God's idea was that God would send the rain, the man would work the ground, and it says God put him in the Garden of Eden in verse 15 to work it and to take care of it. Why? So that this would produce seed, this would become fruitful, and the seed would produce trees, which would produce fruit, which would produce seed, which would produce trees, which would produce fruit, which would produce... So you get the, the model, you get the idea. So he's been put here to work this. Why? To learn the process. Okay? Why has he got to learn the process? Because the whole idea was not that this was Adam's heaven, that this is, the ver this, this is a parallel of heaven. It was never a parallel of heaven. The whole idea was, okay, Adam, have you got it? Are you understanding this? Right, now here's the deal. You start going out from there and you take the seed from here that's come from the fruit that was grown by the trees that came from the seed that came from the fruit that came from the trees and you take that out here. So the idea was for Adam would turn this into that, okay? Or turn that into this, whichever way you want it to be. So Adam's purpose was to take the fruitfulness of the garden and reproduce it in the barrenness of the earth. Okay? So his question about who am I and why am I here was all happening here. Here's who you are. You're my son. And the reason you're here is because you are empowered to change the world. And the partnership with me will empower you to make it like that. So... Do you understand now why Jesus said, I want you to pray, your kingdom come and your will be done here on earth like it is in heaven? So now we don't get transformed or transported 
by a revelation of who God is into a Garden of Eden. What we get transported into is something that God calls the kingdom of God and of his son. Okay? He says you have been translated into the kingdom of God and of his son. Now, if we have the full experience of that, what God is showing us is that then we can build the ecclesia. The ecclesia is those ordinary people who begin to make a difference in their world and change it so that this becomes like that. The whole purpose of God sending Jesus was never so you could go there to meet God and find Jesus so you could go here. I was never in the equation. The whole idea was everything that we are here, we're going to create here so that when you partner with us, this will come here. Your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth like it is in heaven. No, because we have distorted views of what we think heaven is. Because again, uh, in that mix and the mischief, we have to make heaven something that's like, well, we, yeah, it's a place we want to go to rather than something that we want to bring to see the power of God through ordinary people change the, the face of our world. So, so, so when we understand and change that distortion, we realize why we're here. And we realize that we weren't called together to build a religious meeting place and see how big we can make that so that we can boast about how big our religious meeting place is. That we're actually here to realize that in the barrenness of our experience, we experience God through Jesus. And that is supposed to transform our lives so that in the transformation of our lives, we then take that out here and we impact and change our world. Now, is there a place where we go when we die? Yes. Is it a good place? I believe so, absolutely. What makes it fantastic? Well, not harps and, 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 and gold because, and you know, we used to talk about streets of gold and, and it's like, well, why would you need gold if there's no shops to spend it in, nothing, you know... What's the big deal here? They're all, it's all imagery and typology that really the issue is wherever you are and Jesus is present, the kingdom of God exists because the kingdom exists wherever the king who rules over the kingdom is. So whatever that looks like and whatever our poor image of it really doesn't matter. It's going to be a fantastic place if we die. Okay, But the point is we weren't put here just to live and die. We were put here to live and bring the kingdom of God and his truth. Okay, now there are all other things we could talk about that, but one, one other little principle for the last, last few minutes. Okay, so, so let's get rid of this a minute and let's clean, let's clean our garden up a little bit. Okay, so we've got Adam, here's Adam, and now of course we have Eve. Skirt on her there, just so we know that's Eve. We have Adam and Eve in the garden. Yeah, topless. Because we have the trees. Okay, two trees. Of course, we get the whole thing of then they eat from the tree, and God says, The day they eat of it, you will die. That I haven't got time to give some thoughts and theories on all that. But then we come to this concept that is another part of the mischief, which is that what happened that day was God's whole plan for humanity was destroyed in a moment. And that the only way to fix that is ultimately by the world coming to an end and, and of course, going to heaven, which is always the people who are saying going to heaven are always the ones who believe they're going to heaven and going to hell, which is always their mothers, that's not us, you know. So 
So we get again this, this distortion that it's all about this, heaven and hell. When actually it's about something much greater than that, the kingdom. So here they are, and then of course, here's how the story goes. Adam and Eve sinned and they fell from grace. And uh, God could no longer have fellowship with man, okay? Because God can't look upon sin, okay? That, that's the standard narrative. And so they get booted out of the garden. Goodbye, thank you, and good night, okay? There you go. Let's go. Out of the garden, gone, right? That's, that's the standard narrative. So now... God has nothing to do with them. God, God can't look upon sin, so God can't have fellowship anymore with them. Now, there's, a problem, there's one problem we have with that, which is that when you continue then to read Genesis, you see God still having connection with humanity. He's still actually visiting these people who've sinned and talking with them and has a conversation with Cain and with Abel and, his, and, and somehow God's still in, still in communion with people. Because the problem is, you see, that, that that old model of the mix, what it says is that the moment Adam and Eve sinned, it changed how God sees people. But when you take away the mischief of the mix, you say all that happened here is it changed the way of how people see God. And that the problem was never on God's side about people, the problem was on people's side about God. And so way through time here, God does something wonderful because he sends a man who ultimately would die on a cross and he sends that man for this reason, to say, I look like that, I talk like that, I behave like that, I love like that, I act like that. When you've seen Jesus, you've seen me because again, in the old model, what we say is that Jesus was like God. But when you take away the mix, you say, no, it's the opposite that's true. God is like Jesus. Because we're told in Scripture that Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. God is like me. Now, of course, our problem is, again, we're getting into all kinds of discussions that we'll have to pick up in another session. But the problem is, God now can't talk to humanity. God does all this time until we get to here, and then all of a sudden, God can now be open to humanity because now, now because of what Jesus has done, that makes that possible. Now, that, that is a theory called substitutionary atonement, okay? Which is another conversation, a very clever word to impress your friends with. We can talk about that, but... but but I want to bring you back that when we get our lens here, it's very interesting. I'm going to show you how mischief comes in. Okay, listen to this. Okay, so we get to uh, what's called the fall of man in chapter 3. And, uh, you know, God has the conversation with them. Have you eaten from the tree and blah, blah, blah. And there's, there's stuff in there we've, we can talk about redemption, but not got time for that tonight. But listen to this. So... So the Lord God banished him. This is verse 23 of chapter 3. The Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. So there's another confirmation. He was taken from this ground, not from this ground. Okay. So, so now, here's the image we have. God's banished him from the garden. He's out of sorts with God. God's going to have nothing to do with him until we get here to Jesus. Okay. But here's the problem. Verse 24, after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden, 
Okay. Now remember, remember when he made the earth, it says, and he made, uh, planted a garden in the east, in Eden, so that wasn't the whole earth, it was just a place, the east. Now listen, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim, which is an angelic being, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So it's like, it's like your kids, get out of the house for a minute, just go, leave me alone, okay? And then in the east of the garden, where the, here's the tree of life, he puts a flaming sword. That's a brilliant drawing of a sword, right? <laughs> or a dagger. It's actually, yeah, actually the, the literal Hebrew is a dagger. <laughs> no, it isn't really. It's <laughs> flaming sword, right? Flaming, flaming sword. So, so, if the sword is only guarding the way to the tree of life, does Adam and Eve still have access to the garden? Is the sword keeping them out of the garden or is it only keeping them away from the tree of life? So we have not an act of judgment but an act of grace. Because God says, if you idiots in the state you're in live forever, you are not going to like this, okay? So I'm going to help you, right? Ultimately, your battery is going to run out, okay? Because if you just carry on being as stupid as you are, I am not helping you. So actually, the idea of death was a work of grace. And that work of grace finds its fulfillment in Jesus. When, when he conquers death, right? Because he said, now I've removed the issue of the stupidity. We can conquer death, and so life can come. So... What I'm trying to show you is in the distorted view, the mischief that Martin Luther picked up, the mischief says we can't go in the garden, we have no access to the goodness of God, God has removed himself from us. No, God did an act of grace that says I can't let you live forever in this condition. But the issue is they've still got access to the garden. So, what does that mean? It means they can still get the seed that came from the fruit that was grown on the trees. So they're still empowered to change this into something beautiful. Now, uh, if, you, if you've ever been out and about and had a drive and had a look, you'll see actually it worked quite well. You know, it's a beautiful world. Now he says, so what's the issue here? The issue is, the problem was not that they were stopped from having access to all the provision of God. See, this is where we distort the gospel grace ensures that we always have access to the provision of God. So it was never God's view of, God's view of humanity never changed even though they did what he said not to do. Their view of God changed. So the problem is never God trying to fix what he thinks about man. The problem is God trying to fix what man thinks about God. And so the whole narrative of the Bible brings us to this because God's saying this is my big shot in the game here. My big shot is God so loved the world that he gave his only son. I have to show you somehow that my view of you has never changed but hopefully when you see what I do in Jesus your view of me will change so we see the God of all grace the God of all goodness and realize that actually he had never changed his heart towards us right from the beginning so really our salvation is the recovery of that understanding of what God had already established in the beginning and why when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't say, because I've done this, something is starting and hopefully you'll come to an understanding of it. He said, it's finished. 
So now please come to an understanding of it, but no, it's already finished. So just to finish this off, and we're, we're, we're done for tonight. So they still have access to the garden. So, so we've been given mischief because we were always taught and led to believe that they were completely put out of the garden, but that's not what the Bible says. And that because they were out of the garden, they had no access to the provision of God, but that's not what the Bible says. And that God wouldn't speak to them, so we have to wait until then, but that's not what the Bible says, because God's still conversing and he's trying to work and he's trying to bring grace and he's trying to change their view of him. So what happened simply, the thing was that he said to the woman, poor women, I do apologize, um, you know, with pain you will give birth to your children. You know, and, and you will have this deal of where you are subject and feel dominated by the male gender. And he says to Adam that now with the sweat of your brow you'll work the ground and it'll produce thorns and thistles. So here's the deal, here's what I want to show you. We think that it was a curse that Adam and Eve were put out of the garden, but they're always going to be put out of the garden. That was the point. That was the point. They weren't supposed to live here, otherwise what's the point of this? I mean, how stupid would you be as a God if you say, I'm going to make this, but I'll tell you what, we'll just live here. And, and that can be all barren and unfinished and produce nothing, but we'll have this little garden, we'll just stay in our garden. How, how dumb is that? So we have to conclude God's plan was never for them to stay in the garden. The plan was always you're going to leave the garden. Why was he in the garden? Because he was learning to tend it and take care of it. Why? To realize that the fruitfulness of God was in that garden and that out of the experience of God and his goodness and his provision and his prosperity and his fruitfulness that like, ah, I get it. So if I take that here, I will produce here exactly what I've experienced there. Right? That was the whole point. So, so they're not expelled from the garden permanently. God just puts them out and says, you guys better go while I fix this. Put the same flaming sword there. Then they still had access. But here's the deal. What happened and why life is so painful is that they finished up in this position prematurely. They were always meant to live in the world and change the world. But because we entered that process prematurely, it means that we were not equipped emotionally, personally, spiritually to accomplish this without pain and difficulty and thorns and thistles and all the stuff that were the product of us being prematurely somewhere where we shouldn't have been. So here's the deal. God wants to bring us into the kingdom to mature our hearts about the nature, the character of God, about the good news of the gospel, about the grace that we have been given, about the finished work of Jesus, so that we don't go into our world unprepared and premature, but we actually go into our world prepared and mature, knowing that our function is to be in the world, to change the world, so the kingdom of God can come. And then suddenly we have purpose in our lives. And the purpose not being the distortion that I have to avoid going there and go there, which then becomes the obsession. What do I have to do to not go there? What do I have to do to go there? Meanwhile, our sensitivity to this has completely been lost because this has not become the point anymore. That's become the point. So the mischief of the gospel, when you mix the two, says, ah, okay, here's the point of your life. Make sure you don't go there and go there. Right? 
Jesus comes and says, okay, the kingdom of heaven looks like this. The kingdom of God looks like this. This is how the kingdom of God changes the world. This is what I want you to be. And I believe the fulfillment that we find as human beings is when we catch that purpose. Because now we've become the very people that God created in the beginning and we have understood that we have access to the fruitfulness of heaven and that as we take that fruitfulness, it changes our world. So really, this is a message of purpose that says this is our purpose. This is the point. But we're not going to fulfill it while ever we're subject to the mischief and the mischief will take us away from the point. So I echo the words of Martin Luther when he says, let's get rid of the mischief, so we have to not mix the two systems. We have been freed from the law. That means we have been freed from having to work to get the favor of God and produce the favor of God, and we have been brought into the gospel, which is the good news, which is the grace poured on our lives that we receive by faith, that the vertical issue is now taken care of. That's not the point. It's the horizontal here, that now we want a horizontal consequence in our world is you let loose. That's what the consequence is. You let loose on a world that is still struggling under the curse to show that the kingdom of God has changed our lives. So we said enough for tonight. You've been a wonderful people. And I, I apologize for my artistic skills. But it just, it's just gets rid of the nervous energy if you can do stuff like this on a board, you know, like, like a maniac. So, 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 receive it, you know. Again, we can't say this enough, but, but God's heart towards you has never, ever changed, never been any different. But let your heart be changed towards God. You know, let your view of him be radically transformed. And my, my desire and heart is, is that we as a people, in the days that we have on this earth, will be the people who transform the barrenness and the death and the horror that's in there because we've got the fruit of the kingdom of heaven that we've experienced in our lives. So we receive it. Father, thank you. We bless you. And we declare we're the children of grace in Jesus' name. And we refuse to be part of the mischief in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're done.